Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups on a bunch of different stocks going all the way back to 2005 from Jeff for free. Uh, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, go to focuscompound.com and hit that invest with us tab. That's the best place to get access to that information. Um, we are going to be doing our monthly Q&A podcast here today. Uh, so to be on the lookout for that in the future, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @focuscompound, which is generally where I push out everything that we do related to focus compounding. So all that information is going to be down in the description. Uh, so be sure to go there to check it out. Uh, leave us a rating review on wherever you're listening or watching us. That helps spread the word with everything that we are doing here uh, on the podcast. So before we jump into uh, the Q&A and some topics, uh, but we could talk about the market really quick. We are coming into the end of the year, 2022. Today is December 21st, 2022. And the S&P 500 is currently down 18% year to date. Uh, the 10 year yield is 3.684%. Crude oil, $78.44. And natural gas, $5.43. Um, we are going to record next week. So I think next week we're gonna do like a special end of year podcast where we could talk a little bit more about lessons learned, just thoughts from the year. And then, you know, add in some predictions for the new year. So I'm putting something together that I think would be fun. Um, but it looks like, you know, it's going to be a down year for the S&P 500 um, where we currently sit. And, uh, you know, it's crazy to think, Jeff, that, you know, where yields were at the beginning of the year, right? Um, and here they are, the 10-year at three spot, six, eight, four percent We've come a long way, huh? Yeah, I listened to the podcast from last year at the end. And it was that we were saying the market was expecting three rate hikes from the Fed in 2022. <laughs> so that was near the very, very end. It was one of the last few weeks of December of last year, so about a year later. And instead, it was, you know, more than 3%. It was quite a bit more. So three 25 basis point rate hikes? Yeah, I assume so. I mean, we didn't say. Uh, we, uh -huh. we just said how much the increases would be, but I think they were certainly thinking 25 at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I think around this time there were someone, uh, I don't remember, you know, this time last year, if it was Jamie Dimon or who was talking about, well, it could be five, six, seven, you know, people were saying, oh, that's insane. You know, yeah. um, we said, you know, they could just keep raising expectations all the time, you know, pushing it a little bit further than people expected and the market would adjust and everything. Well, that kind of happened, but a lot more than we were expecting that way. Yeah. Are you surprised that we've ended up where we are? Yes. I'm not surprised that, you know, I mean, we talked about it about a year ago that, you know, various rules of thumb and stuff would have suggested that you needed rates to be closer to like 6% or something, actually. Um, although inflation could come down and things could change without the Fed doing anything, right? And so that could help parts of it. But um, so I'm not surprised by how much inflation we had and all that. But yes, I am surprised by the uh, how much the Fed did in how much time they did it. Um, because, you know, 
throughout most of the 21st century now, you know, um, there, there's been very few periods where they were raising it a lot. And it's been pretty easy throughout almost everything since the NASDAQ crash, right? There was a brief period where it was raised a lot at the, um, end of what would become the financial crisis. You know, I, what was turn was about to turn into the financial crisis. Um, but other than that, rates have been very low and they've been low for a decade. And, you know, uh, there was also expectation that we had to wait till they were done with, um, quantitative easing before mm-hmm. they could go into tightening and the, you know they basically went right from easing to tightening right away so do you think that we're going to stay in this third wave going forward that we talked about on last week's podcast when uh or sea change that howard marx has talked about where you know the first sea change was um you know uh in his career the uh start of like the junk bond market second sea change was a continuous decline of interest rates and this third sea change is going to be like a full income return type world where, you know, bonds and different various investments are going to yield equity like returns. Um, do you think that's going to be how uh, it will shape up going forward? I don't know. It might be. I've always expected more of that happening than has happened throughout my entire career investing, um, basically. Uh, so. You know, it generally hasn't happened. Uh, stock prices have been higher and, and bond prices have been higher than I expected throughout that period. Um, with the exception of a few periods we talked about, like right before the financial crisis, most commodity prices have been lower, um, you know, and inflation has been low for most of that period. So, um, you know, it, but any of these things, you can look at what predictions were just a few years before, right? Like if we look at what the rate is now, only a few years ago, before a few years before COVID, that was what the Fed penciled in as their expectation for the neutral rate. So, and then it they then said the neutral rate was like two percentage points lower than that, you know, now. But something happened in a matter of a few years where they changed that. So these expectations of the future are, you know, um, they, they change a lot based on the recent past. Like right now, people are pretty pessimistic, strategists and whoever, you know, Wall Street people, about next year, right? But they weren't that pessimistic going into this year. Um, and it's not that common to see two yearly declines in a row. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, it's not that common to have a down year at all. But that would be a really big thing to have happen. We had one of the worst years ever for bonds. Um, a very bad year. One of the, you know, the half dozen or so really bad years for the stocks, S&P, and those sorts of things. Um, it's just not that common to have that. Nor is it that common for inflation that goes up this much to stay up um, that high, right? So, but expectations were a lot different a year ago, and they kind of follow what the recent past is, right? That's what we usually see. And I think we see a lot of that Mm -hmm. right now. Um, So even when you look at things Mm -hmm. like crude oil there and natural gas, right? We're at levels on those two uh, from probably early in the year, like around March... Um, I mean, on the year, depending on what thing you use, you're basically close to flat now on some of these things. And certainly you're at levels that were basically what it was before the, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, and and I didn't hear everyone saying, you know, that they would be right back to those levels within a matter of months, you know, that, that this is a a change that's going to reverse in a few months. So the recent past often has a really big impact on people's expectations. How do you guard against that? Well, 
it's hard. Um, I think you try to pay attention. Buffett's talked about this, like that things can happen that no one's ever seen before. Um, that things can happen that people have forgotten happen because they're just not in the recent past and all their data that they use in the periods they think of are in the recent past. Um, and so you think about those sort of outliers and those things that could be totally different from what they were in the past. I, you know, and I think the last podcast I talked about how since the central bank in the U.S. has really been independent consistently, which is like the early 1950s, um, the median Fed funds rate is like 4%, a little over 4%. And, you know, any average you use is in the 4 to 4.5% range. Um, it doesn't feel that way to people because it rose for like half that period and it fell for half that period. But we're at a level that's not all that unusual in that, you know, and you try to keep that in mind. Uh, crude oil, you know, Quan and I did certain estimates of what sort of a normal price would be on that. And when you adjust for inflation from that time till now, and it's a little complicated because the we're quoting in dollars and it would be different if we use different currencies, but um, it's not that far from like a normal sort of price. Like that looks fairly normal, even though it seems strange because we've had so much movement in it, right? But S&P price level does not seem normal. It seems incredibly high. Stock prices seem incredibly high by any Schiller uh, estimates and things like that. So like Fed funds doesn't seem that weird. Ten-year doesn't seem that weird, you know, um, because having a ten-year yield that isn't that different from what you expect GDP growth and stuff to be isn't that unusual for an economy. So that doesn't look weird. Mm -hmm. um, crude oil doesn't look that weird. Natural gas, when you compare it to longer, you know, fifteen-year averages and stuff, doesn't look that strange. The one that looks strange is the overall stock price level, right? Uh -huh. And it looks really strange when compared to the change in uh, interest rates, right? Um, you know, but the other interesting thing is think about if you were from certain countries, and some of our listeners may be, and they held the S&P 500. Some of them aren't really looking at much of any loss in their currency, right? It depends on what currency you're in, but it's pretty mild what any decline was if you held it because you're thinking in terms of your own local currency. And a lot of them, un until fairly recently for some, were really weak um, against the dollar during this year. You know, um, we talked about Japanese yen that moved a huge amount, most in 25 years or something recently. But before that, obviously, if you were in Japan investing in the U.S., you were feeling pretty good about your stock returns. I mean, all you could be in is like gold or cash or something that would have the same sort of returns. Everything else lost money and you wouldn't have lost money in your currency. When the history books talk about the stock market in 2020 to the end of 2021, do you think it'll be looked at similar to the internet tech boom in, you know, 99 and 001, like that time frame? Do you think that um, it will be like comparable to that? Or do you think that the tech boom was much more drastic than what happened the past few years? I mean, I think ARC uh, innovation and the tech boom are basically the same sort of thing. I think if we looked at meme stocks and the the tech boom, that's similar. Uh, but the broader stock market, I don't think will be remembered that way. I think they'll remember it as having to do with COVID um, and uh, government actions and blaming and things like that. Uh, similar to 1970s and to a little extent, 1929, a lot of the blame goes to something happened that caused this bubble to burst. Uh, no one really has a good explanation for what happened that burst the dot-com bubble. Um, it's just, it, 
the prices got crazy. And that's what people say, you know, the prices got crazy and came down. But sometimes their their explanation is given that, oh, the prices weren't really that weird if if other um, things hadn't happened in the economy, right? So the 1970s, right? Like 73, 74 is terrible, terrible market, right? Um, but like now, I think that's blamed on these macroeconomic factors, these shocks, these, whether it's government policy, central bank policy, um, things happening around the world, all that stuff. It's not really that uh, the stock market was perceived to be really that high. And so that's the explanation as if things were normal there and then that happened. Um, the ones that are bubbles that people remember that way are definitely the NASDAQ bubble and the, uh, the housing bubble and the Japan bubble. And the Japan bubble is everything bubble in Japan. But those three things are really the ones that stand out above everything else. Um, there are these little things that you get, like we talked about with the meme thing and the arc. Um, but there, there are speculative manias that happen all the time, but things that affect, that people remember is just everyone went crazy and bid up these big assets, uh, big asset classes to really high levels. I think those are the only ones that people think of that way. What caused the bubble, would you say, in Japan? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, so... I think with any of these things, there's um, it, usually it takes a long time. And usually it makes a lot of sense at the beginning. So take the 1920s, right? In 1921, stocks are actually pretty cheap. They're coming out of a recession that year or the next year. Um, earnings are going to be going up a lot. Uh, they were already cheap. Things are good throughout that period and it makes a lot of sense and also the the belief in stocks as opposed to bonds for long-term returns makes a lot of sense so it makes a ton of sense it only starts getting weird around 1926 or so and that's where you sort of see prices going in a really unusual speed what's happening um with japan it started so say stocks um but there's real estate there's other things for it started incredibly cheap and incredibly fast growing for decades. If you read, one of the best things to read on that is probably the Davis double play, uh, the Davis uh, dynasty, which is where we get the idea for the Davis double play. And also, um, actually, there's always something to do, the Peter Kundal book. Because both of those people saw Japan early on, right, in like the 60s or the 70s. And then also, the book takes you through the period at the end of the 80s, uh, where it's gotten into a crazy bubble, right? And Peter Kendall is actually shorting Japan at that point. And so you can see kind of the beginning of that thought to later. But I was talking to um, Quan in Vietnam. And, you know, but I've also talked to people in, in Scandinavian countries, and it's not all that different from talking to someone in Vietnam about that. When you've had 20, 25 years of loosening financial conditions consistently in the sense of like your money supply and things like that are growing faster than they really should be for your productive economy and your um, home prices and real estate generally is getting to really crazy levels versus other things. And it's just a belief that that's a safe place to put your money and you don't lose your money there. And it becomes less and less anchored in the yields on it. So no one really worries that you went from in the beginning, this thing was selling it, you know, uh, 10 times the income you could get from, you know, the cash flow you could get from renting and then having your expenses and taking that out. So it was a 10% yield at first. Now it's 5%. Now it's 2%. And then it just, you know, because it's all capital uh, appreciation, right? And in some of these places, it goes on for a very, very long time. So I'd say those things are like most similar to the the housing boom, 
that way in the U.S. It was hard talking to people then to say, yeah, but at, but at a different price, it can't be as attractive. No, they believed it would go up. Hmm. Houses did that. They weren't like stocks or other things, right? It didn't matter that um, if a house doubled in price, it was still just as good an investment. It, it can't be half as good an investment, even though logically it has to be, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... And, you know, it became, it was a little more extreme there, but it, the, the Japan one is insane in some ways, but the dot-com one is too, like, you know, you find these stocks, they're the pretty much the same thing. It's like a telecom stock in the U.S. versus a telecom stock in Japan, a bank in Japan versus a bank in, in the U.S. And it trades at 20 times higher multiples in Japan, right? They're smaller versions of things in the U.S. and they're valued at, at many times higher, um, so, you know, th those things happen, though. Mm -hmm. Have you spent a good amount of time looking at things in Japan recently? Yeah, I've looked at some things in Japan. Um, I don't think it's as attractive as it was 10 years ago. But we'll see. It might become more attractive. Um, I should say relative to other things. So there are more things in other countries that I think would be more attractive for me. A large part of that is because it's very difficult for me to get the information I want on uh, Japanese companies, the most attractive of which are usually smaller companies. There's not a lot of information available on them. And so buying them as net nets or something is fairly easy to do. But compared to buying them in other, uh, buying stocks like that in other countries, you just have a lot more information that I can get in other mm. countries. So I can have more faith in the business going on long term. Sure. So you had sent over to me and I did see this floating around on Twitter. Um, it was uh, the Graham and Dodd annual breakfast, um, and Todd Combs was there. And uh, you had said that, you know, obviously we don't know if this is exactly what was said because we're kind of going off of this blog post, but, um, you know, all things being equal, this is still probably one of the best Buffett screeners that you've come across. Um, and uh, it's, you know, he was saying that him and uh, Todd Combs, he supposedly goes to Warren Buffett's house to talk about stocks. And he gave like a litmus test that they frequently use when discussing stocks. And he said, Warren asks, how many names in the S&P 500 are going to be 15 times earnings in the next 12 months? How many are going to earn more in five years using a 90% confidence level? And how many will compound at 7% and uh, using a 50% confidence you know, level? And Todd had said, in this exercise, you are solving for cyclicality, compounding, and initial price. And Combs said that this rubric was used to find Apple since at the time, the same three to five names kept coming up. So I just wanted to kind of get your initial thoughts on this uh, screener that they had uh, spoken about, uh, basically 15 times EPS next year. You have a 90% confidence level uh, that EPS will be higher in five years and that there's a 50-50 chance of uh, compounding at 7% a year. Um, kind of curious to hear your thoughts on it. Obviously, we don't know if that was exactly what was said, but mm -hmm. you had said that either way, you think this is probably one of the best Buffett screeners out there. Right. I do think this is one of the buff best Buffett screeners out there. And I think it's one of the best screeners for even stocks that I'd be interested in. Um, uh, especially like the use of the confidence levels there. And that's a good way of thinking about it. And um, 
I think the combination of those things together, you're going to have a very good stock if you get those together. But it is worth mentioning for each of those, I have no, uh, for, for each of those, I would put the number that pass it individually at less than one half. In fact, in some cases, quite a bit less than one half. So less than half of all stocks in the S&P 500 um, are going to be 15 times EPS next year, probably. Even when they look like they're going to be, probably EPS will be lower than you'd hoped. And so it'll turn out that the forward is not as good as the as the estimate on that seemed to be about what the P would be. Uh, definitely less than half would have 90% confidence that their EPS will be higher than what it is today. So, um, you know, most stocks you have well less than 90% confidence that they won't be earning less in five years than they are right now. And then, uh, the, you know, the average in terms of having a 50-50 chance of compounding a 7% a year um, is definitely, you know, below 7%, right? Um, so each of those, if you just think about it, if you take even a list of 500 stocks right there, we know that even if they, it was the chance of them passing any of those was completely independent of any of the other factors. Um, you're going to cut that down to like 125 stocks right then, you know, and I'd be say it's way lower than that. So you immediately are throwing out most of the, um, uh, most of the, uh, S and P 500. In fact, I think you would throw out, you know, you'd be down to 125 stocks after just two of those things. So, you know, if you think of it that way, if you say, take them in order, you know, you're basically down to like a hundred stocks or something where you're asking, will this compound at 7% a year? And I think if you put those all together, you're probably eliminating, you know, easily for even the most optimistic people. I think you're going to eliminate 90% of stocks out there, but there's probably 450 stocks in the S&P 500 that you just say this, do it doesn't work. It can't pass all three of these. It's just an interesting, um, peek into his framework assuming that it's true of mm -hmm. what he thinks about right i mean he's not paying 20 times earnings for a business right it's 15 times you know eps um so basically like a market multiple or thereabout and uh that he feels very confident right that would have uh earnings per share much higher in five years and that uh you know that they could compound at seven percent a year i mean i think it lines up kind of nicely with a blog post you did, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, how Buffett's a high certainty investor yep. more than anything else. Um, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that as it relates to like this framework he laid out. Yeah. And actually I was writing a blog post. I had, it was about done um, before I saw this and it was about how to be a high confidence investor in the sense of, you know, we talk a lot about concentration, but I think the problem when I talk to people about it is that's not just betting a lot more on the same stocks that you would have bought anyway. When you have these investors, um, usually, you know, the Buffett types and, and some other ones who do very high concentration levels in a few stocks, especially other topics, they're ones where they have a great degree of confidence. And one of the ways to have that is having multiple points of defense in terms of not losing a lot of money. And if you look at that, one thing that's really interesting about it is that if you even just pass each, you know, each one of those, but fa fail the others, right? If you turn out to be right about some of those things, it's a great deal of protection that you had, right? So if you had, it turns out that it's, you know, um, if you got Tootsie Roll at 15 times PE, and it turns out that there's the other two, it's going to fail. You know, it's not going to happen or whatever, but you thought it would, but it didn't. Well, there's still a really good chance that you won't lose money because even if its earnings are a bit lower in five years, even if it doesn't grow anywhere near that, that kind of company at 15 times earnings, um, it's likely that even in, um, 
uh, after bad performance, some company will acquire it at 20, 25, you know, whatever. Um, but making a mistake on any one of those can offset the others. So if you're careful to make sure that you look at each of those points, that it's going to be bigger over time, that it's going to be growing its profits over time, that's almost certain to grow its profits over time, and that you're not paying too high a price, that gives you a great deal of protection to be wrong about the other things. So you can fail one of those and still have a lot of the protection from the other ones. You're not relying too much on, on only one thing. Mm -hmm. I love how uh, it, this had said that Ackman actually was there and he had asked a question. And this is what I, how I originally heard about um, you know, the uh, framework that Todd Combs laid out was because this was going on, uh, I don't want to say going viral on Twitter, but it said that Ackman had asked him about like, uh, where is it? Yeah. Berkshire's investment in New Bank and how did the idea come to Berkshire, how it was found, and what was the nature of the due diligence? Um, and how do you, Todd Combs, think of its value? And apparently Todd did not want to discuss any names in particular, which is kind of, you know, Berkshire fashion. And then so I guess Bill just like asked him immediately uh, about the moral grounds of investing in a company that makes sugary beverages, uh, such as like Coca-Cola. And which I thought was kind of funny because I mean, Ackman's invested in like McDonald's, Burger King, Domino's. So, I mean, I wouldn't exactly say that, you know, uh, they're but he's asked that different. He has. Yeah. He's talked he about that before. That. That's CNBC and stuff. Yes. Yeah. I assume he's a uh, health person. He, that's correct. He's known. Yeah. You know, Self-proclaimed health nut. Sure. Yeah. I just thought it was kind of funny though. Cause it's like, I mean, you've invested in so many different companies that one could argue have not been the most healthy company for society as well. Sure. Yeah. And of course, Combs didn't buy Coca-Cola. No. And he did say Buffett that did. that it wasn't <laughs> his idea. Yeah. So I, I did think that was interesting, but it was cool hearing about, uh, you know, Todd Combs and, uh, he doesn't do too many media stuff. He definitely doesn't do too many interviews. Um, he actually lives in Omaha. Isn't that correct? He moved there. Yeah, I believe that's that's true. Um, definitely. Is he still and, CEO of Geico? Yes. That's oh, the, the hell does that happen? And, and he says that uh, basically he invests on nights and weekends. Yeah. After uh, work, all the investing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's an interesting thing about how Warren Buffett, you know, uses people available to him that he will put in someone that he thinks can do that. Now he has a background in in, in um, insurance, but uh, yeah, not a normal choice to be CEO of Geico. What do you think the CEO of Geico makes per year? 10, 15, 20 million more? I have no idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, Geico is pretty similar to Progressive and we mm -hmm. have public disclosures on that. We have some public disclosures with Berkshire. Um, but there are probably some people at Berkshire's operating units that are paid a lot of money that are not um, at corporate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Alrighty, we could jump over to our Q&As. And the first question says, love your thoughts on the claim that free cash flow is not all that important as long as return on invested capital slash return on equity is high. Um, and that you want a company to invest all of their cash flow back into the business as long as they can do it at good returns. Sounds like what Warren Buffett thinks about retained earnings and compounding. Thank you. Yeah. Um, very true, right? Yeah. Um, the one caveat on that is I get a lot of people bringing stocks that have minimal cash flow from operations, right? And um, 
you know, never have free cash flow. You do want to make sure that the cash would be available to be taken out of the business if they didn't grow, if they didn't reinvest and try to look for that steady state and then they expand it. Um, so you do, there's sort of an accounting thing where you do have to make sure the quality of the business is there and that it's not all just in growing inventory and receivables and that this is really a business that takes more and more cash as it runs in place. Um, but that's the owner earnings idea. But as long as it's there, then reinvesting in a big way is what you want it to do. Obviously, you don't want, you know, we were talking about Geico. You don't want Geico to pay out a lot of money. To you, you want it to first grow as fast as it can in terms of policies at the right combined ratio, just like Progressive and Geico for decades, and then only after that pay things out. But there's no reason you want a 100% payout ratio. Um, the way to create the most value when you're earning, let's say, 10% or better returns um, after tax, like cash return on equity type stuff, is to put it back into the business. Mm-hmm. Next question. Have you ever owned a company where the CEO was in charge of operations at four or five other companies at the same time? If so, can you tell me how it ends? Uh, no, I have not. So, do you, Andrew, do you understand what he's probably <laughs> referencing here? Yeah. Okay. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that would be very challenging. Yeah. I don't know how I someone would... could do that. Yeah. I'd say that's, that's very, very tough. How do you even divide your time for something like that? It seems to be technology and people with engineering backgrounds who do this. They have to be in tech and they have to be some sort of engineer or something to think that this is a thing to do, a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, although we did just say Todd Combs is running what a, we don't know the exact amount, but I'd say between the two of them, what, $30 billion or something. So he's he's probably running, you know, what would be a very large fund if it was on its own. And at the same time, running one of the largest insurance companies in America. So I guess it's possible. <laughs> um, I would imagine, though, it does not end well. I think that would be very challenging. And perhaps somebody could do that in the short term. But I don't know how you um, do anything to the best of your ability. The jack of all trades is the master of none. So I imagine that would be very challenging. Yeah, I think you can control a lot of things. I don't think you can run them. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I think you can control an influence, you know, how, I mean, if how many boards, how much influence, whatever has John Malone had over time and it worked out okay for him, but he had, uh, CEOs who were actually running things in, in, in each case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like Berkshire, right? Like he has CEOs running the, uh, companies and the units and he's the one that's just focused on the capital allocation. Right. Right. And at one time, Buffett was on a ton of outside boards, you know, in the 70s or 80s, probably peaked in the 80s, um, doing all this stuff at the same time he's investing, at the same time he was doing all of that. Um, but I think he's also admitted that having the vice chairman um, is probably a better way of doing things because, you know, he, he had, what, 50 different people call, could call him up, you know, officially. I mean, each of the business units was reporting to him before they, they broke it down into insurance and, and non-insurance. Now, I think some of them never talked to him. But some probably talk to him all the time. So, mm -hmm. so you think the individual uh, presidents or CEOs, whatever you want to call it, they right. report to like Munger, and the Munger reports to Buffett. You think that's how it works? No, no. I mean, I think Ajit Jain and okay. Greg Abel. Uh, one does the insurance side; all the insurance businesses mm -hmm. basically go through him, and the other one does all of the non-insurance stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now they're also running their own things, though. They're basically running the biggest units in in their own categories there. So it's not Berkshire still as much. Um, flatter organization than you'd normally have. Normally you would have someone who is um, 
you know, you would not have someone who's running a business unit there and then also having all those business units report to them, which is what they're doing. You know, each of them are kind of first among equals that way. They're one of the people running it, but then they're responsible for that whole category, right, of the business. Um, yeah, I think that that's really tough. Would you ever have an interest in joining a company's board if you were invited? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it depends, you know. Um, I think usually when investors get involved in uh, being on boards and stuff, it's because it was uh, not possible to achieve what they wanted to without being on the board. So I think, unfortunately, like the best boards to be on and the best investments that you've made don't um, really wouldn't benefit from you being on that board. And um, unfortunately, it's the situations that didn't work out as planned or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's usually the case. Next question. How much is too much concentration for an individual investor's portfolio? Does it change depending on AUM and how risky the assets are, like net cash versus leveraged stocks? Um, I mean, personally, I think it should depend most on your net worth and your likely future earnings versus how much you're investing. Um, I think it's insane to use a portfolio based method of it to say like I've invest you know if you just graduated from college and you've saved $10,000 right and you've just gotten a job that pays very well and uh, you think you have a good career ahead of you right you don't have debt and whatever um, and you're saving a little bit more money each month than you need so your bank account is slightly positive and it's going up each month right okay at that point you can take that $10,000 in capital and put it all into one stock and you are not overly concentrated. However, that is not the case if you're about to retire and don't have a lot of future um, savings flows that will exceed what you're putting in today. So the thing is, the actual amount that you're putting in when you're fairly young and going to save in the future is really small as a risk versus your future flows that you'll be having. And you'll see that if you try to invest. What you'll realize if you're a net saver is that what you thought were very high levels of concentration are quickly being diluted down to not those levels because you're saving more and more money. But at the point where you're realizing you're not diluting it down, then you might be overly concentrated, right? So, I mean, this was a simple idea when we talked about widows and orphans, right? People could talk about that in the 1950s and before. But they really had a good reason for that because the idea of that is widows and orphans cannot save they can't be net savers over their lives going ahead. So this is their capital and this is it. And so you have to think totally differently about that. And then the other thing I think is that a risk-free and liquid asset of some amount uh, would benefit most people. So I think that people can be more concentrated in individual stocks or higher risk assets than you might think. But I think most people are too low on actual cash or something that's very closely equivalent to cash. I think you could benefit from owning some two-year and shorter treasuries um, and having that as always present in a separate part of your um, uh, savings. And I think that that would be better for a lot of people than worrying about, should I have a 60-40 portfolio when that 40 is in long-term bonds or other things that could be subject to some of the same risks as stocks, right? So um, what do you think? So you would just, uh, I just want to build on that for people listening. So are you saying, you know, you keep capital in short-term treasuries until you have an idea and then you can use part of that capital or whatever for an individual investment? 
Yeah, I think that people should have some amount of a truly liquid, basically cash equivalent. I think people would benefit from having more of that than they do usually. Um, now, you can keep that completely separate from what you consider your savings, your investments, right? By just having large amounts of bank deposits or something like that, right? I mean, that's not the best way to earn a lot of interest on it, but you know, you can sweep that into something else. But um, I think that matters more than like the volatility. That, that's the problem that I have is it's the risk of ruin. It's the risk of going broke that you should be afraid of. It's the risk of it changing your life in a big way. And so I really don't think that the average person is too concerned about that um, risk of volatility. I think mo most people I talk to are, if I shouldn't say too concerned, they're, um, they are overly concerned. They might be too concerned. You know, I, I wouldn't say that they could, t um, they could, they may not emotionally be able to handle a lot of volatility, but in terms of the outcome, a lot of volatility is, is not really the problem I would worry about with them. What I worry about with them is realistically, are you, are your savings going up all the time? And um, realistically, uh, what does this look like versus the chances that you could get down to savings levels that are not compatible with what you're trying to do longer term? Um, what are the, those real risks? Okay, next question. Do you have a price target for upcoming spinoffs to pull the trigger? I was curious about your thoughts on PKI and GE spinoffs coming early next year. So have you looked at PKI, which sounds like uh, it's being spun off from GE? I have not looked at uh, either of those things being discussed there. Um, we can, uh, do we have a source for spinoff things? Um, we know about the GE spinoffs. Um, I don't necessarily have a price target, but I do try to value the stock myself. Um, mm -hmm. So generally, if I buy a spinoff, it's because it came in at a price that's very different from what I looked at. Um, in fact, even if I'm late to it and it's already spun off, uh, I will have, um, valued it ahead of time and then not looked at the price, right? Mm -hmm. Because it won't be in, you know, uh, it, it won't have much of a price history, even within a month or so of, of coming public. So it's easy to avoid knowing what the market cap is and then you know, all that. Um, so yeah, like, like say NACA, which is a spinoff, it was the, uh, the, remaining part of the spinoff. Uh, yeah, I had an idea of what I thought it should be, what each of the two parts should be worth and then what they spun off at. Yeah. yeah so that's why I would buy is because the price was very different from what I appraised uh, it at. This is the question I'm interested to uh, hear your answer to. What do you think about Virtu's recent acquisition? Not necessarily cheap, uh, 13 times 2019 earnings and dilutive to tangible book value. It's a pretty big acquisition. Yeah, I, I don't know is the answer. You know, I, I don't really know en enough about it. I mean, I've read the same things that you have and looked at that. Obviously, it doesn't look incredibly cheap based on the um, multiples that they're paying yeah. compared mm -hmm. to their own stock. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, do I expect that the return on the acquisition will be as good as if they were just buying back their own stock or something like that? Probably not. No. Um, might it be an okay use of capital versus, you know, say trying to grow organically or something by you know opening completely new dealerships or something i don't think that's a realistic thing that companies are going to do a lot of in that um in the uk car industry but um car dealer industry but yeah i mean that's certainly possible it's not um i would say the return on their own stock would probably be a lot better than mm -hmm. the return on the acquisition but i don't think the return on the acquisition will necessarily be a lot worse than the average 
return on invested capital that you see in in the dealer business, right? So which is pretty low usually. Um, so I don't know that it like deserves to be valued at an even lower book value or something than Vertu it's, itself is, right? But you know, um, there are some synergies in you know acquisitions for car dealerships, and uh, we'll we'll see. But I'd say it's um. It doesn't strike me as like something that would cause me to sell because I'm worried that the capital allocation is crazy and also doesn't, you know, increase my uh, estimate of sort of what I would think the company would be worth or something like that. It's it's in a fairly wide band of pretty neutral in terms of how it would make me think about the stock. Yeah. My initial you know. thought was that, um, you think it would be probably better just to buy back their own stock. But I mean, I guess the other yeah. side to that is it's a less liquid security. But still, I mean, there's ways around taking advantage of a lower multiple stock for a UK company there. They've been pretty good about buying back their stock. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There are us car dealers and us companies that buy back more aggressively, but they have average a pretty high amount of buying back over the last year and a half, two years, something like that. Um, so yeah, but you know, also they have had been paying a large dividend before um, COVID and, you know, I would have preferred more buyback versus dividend there too. So um but, you know, it's doesn't change things a ton in terms of my thinking about it, mostly because of the price of the stock versus what I think it's worth, right? So if the two were right up against each other where it was trading at about fair value and stuff, then something like an acquisition like this might change my thoughts a lot. But when you're pretty far from what you think something's worth, it, it doesn't really change a huge amount just because capital allocation was particularly great or particularly poor or whatever when you're doing something like this. Um, yeah, we have current PE according to Bloomberg four times. Where is that? Price yeah, the book five point uh, point five three times book. Uh, yeah, I think tangible book would be around I don't know seventy one p or something as the last balance sheet. I'd have to check. Um, so, yeah, I you know uh, it's very cyclical though. So that's the other thing. We'll see what happens after that. Um, also the, these aren't always huge premiums over the value of like the land and stuff, you know, the hard value of the dealership, you know, mm -hmm. that's the other thing to keep in mind. So next question, is there anything that Jeff has changed his mind on at the end of the year? Question mark. That's the first question. Then we got two more. Hmm. Anything you've changed your mind on? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure that there is anything that I've changed my mind on during this year. Yeah. I'm assuming that's what he's asking. Yeah, I don't think so. Next question that he asked, if Jeff had to start from zero and rebuild his investment process, what would it look like? Question mark. What would he do more or less of? What would he discard completely? Um, I would say that... I would do more of what we just talked about with um, the kind of uh, approach of is it a 15P, is it 90% uh, confidence it'll be higher in five years, 7% growth sort of thing. I would do more of uh, that Buffett type approach and I would do less of the quantitative value type approach except in situations where it's very extreme. So I would, the thing I would do less of is worrying a lot about the value in those cases where it's not like net nets and arbitrage and things like that. I think the 
the area in which I've had the most problem is in paying pretty low prices for so-so businesses instead of either buying great businesses um, only or uh, focusing only on extraordinary mispricings, uh, extraordinary clear mispricings, I should say. So things like liquidations, arbitrage, um, uh, net nets, things trading near cash, um, you know, just extreme things like that. Um, as opposed to like low PE or low EV to EBITDA or those sorts of things. Yeah. And then the final question was, when are you coming on my podcast, Andrew? Um, I turned on when people reach out for me to go on their podcast simply because I just prefer to be on this side of the mic. I get to control the content. I get to control what we talk about. I get to edit all of it. So yeah. And I used to go on podcasts and, um, basically do not anymore. Have you and we used to have guests forever? on the podcast. Uh, have I swarm off forever? Yeah, is this, um, is this an exclusive? I'm the only one that gets it, to talk to you for two hours. On, it on it may be, yeah. For for now, it is, yeah. And we used to have you know more guests and things. I mean, I think it's something that we decided over time what worked the best for us, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, in my opinion, and no, um, it just is what it is. I do think there's most of the podcasts really in the business, finance, startup, you know, whatever space. It's just really interview based and. Um, I don't know. I feel like when it's just you and I, we don't uh, do it like that. We try to make it as actual as possible and talk about real stocks, pull up the financials and and go through everything, what your thought process is. And I don't know of any other podcaster that's consistently doing that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just thought um, I did probably change my view of um, recovery of the uh, domestic box office for anything besides like blockbuster type things. So when we talked about like the mid budget and below type things, I do feel that we have enough evidence now that that has decreased, right? So I think we've seen that streaming had a real effect on that. And that is the one thing that I can think of this year that definitely I would have changed from last year to this year. I feel like we got a lot more evidence in that, that the box office for the medium and smaller movies is not what it was before COVID. And I don't think that's coming back. So it's interesting, right? So that took you... That was almost two years to right. come to terms with the fact that maybe uh, people's habits have actually changed. You, yeah, like permanently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Next question: How to value a serial acquirer? I don't know. You can try this. Uh, I mean, we get lots we've of questions. We've done podcasts on this. Yeah. And I've heard other people on podcasts. I think it's really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. A couple. I don't know. Probably about a month or so ago. I think it's actually in the title. We went. Um, we pretty much uh, spent the whole podcast talking about that. So I would just refer back to that. Uh, somebody asked to build on this question. How would you think about a company in a no growth industry that is using all of its free cash flow to acquire competitors? For example, if the ad agency industry was more fragmented and Omnicom spent all of its free cash flow on acquisitions. Uh, I, probably I'd be pretty positive on that. You know, it depends on what the economics are, but you know, we just mentioned, um, movie theaters or something, if one of them was in a position where it could be acquiring things, um, had the balance sheet, had the cash flow, whatever, to be able to do that longer term, um, that has been uh, no growth in terms of like um, ticket sales and stuff for a long time. And that would not be a problem. Um, But it has to be done in a really smart way, um, which usually means that the market is kind of not positive on the the stocks in it. you know, we just talked about one that I don't know if the price was great or whatever, but car dealers, I would be 
positive on car dealers buying each other up. Um, that, that you know that's fairly fragmented. They could use their free cash flow to do that. Um, a lot of them have gotten in trouble by doing too much debt. You know, uh, mm-hmm. some have used stock, but a lot have used too much debt or something like that. But yeah, using their free cash flow to do that kind of thing, I think, makes a lot of sense. And that's you know not exactly no growth, but it's not as bad as like the ad agency business has been the last ten years. Somebody asked, how does Jeff think about valuing the common stock of a company that has preferred stock on the balance sheet? Uh, it, it depends. Like you'd have to learn about the preferred stock specifically. So if you look on the balance sheet of these companies, you also see in other parts of the 10K, you'll see that it describes the preferred stock there and what the preferred stock is entitled to in terms of um, liquidation value, certainly. And then also like payments in terms of um, preferred dividends. Um, generally I would say that a preferred stock is, so some companies more recently have convertible preferred and and that's a whole different story, but a straight preferred is basically, you can value it as if it is debt, as if it's a bond, you know, that's basically how you can treat it. Yeah. That's what Jacob said. He said, it is like debt financing that can forever be outstanding, high interest expense, especially since the preferred dividend is paid with after tax dollars, flexibility on timing of dividends and repayment too. Uh, someone said, I know it's bigger than what you normally look at, but any thoughts on Joe? So that's St. Joe. It's gained Joe-mentum over the last two years in terms of business performance. Sorry, not sorry for pun. So have you looked at St. Joe? Uh, years ago, yes. I mean, you would probably be better to think of this. These are these stocks generally I'm kind of biased against. Um, that's not to say that they won't work out, but you know, it's the kind of stock that got talked about a lot, right? Cause I, mm-hmm. Berkowitz was big in it and, um, it, these kinds of, you know, asset plays and, um, and things that haven't been developed yet. Right. So if you own like a lot of undeveloped property in attractive places, whether that's, um, whether we're talking about, uh, deposits of some commodity or whatever you have or land it, that gets people really excited. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, He's still the chairman of the business, I believe. Okay. How's the the stock has done really well recently? Yeah, I believe it's uh, over the past couple of years, really because of the area that they owned or own real estate has gone uh, pretty crazy in the panhandle over the past uh, few years. But yeah, so it looks like they were up to, uh, you know, 55 bucks or whatever, and we've pulled back. But yes, they did benefit going through 2020 and 2021. Now, now the problem on that stock chart, if it's correct, is that it looks the same as like Maui Land and Pineapple and <laughs> yeah. Kuanal Land Association in that it topped out in 2005 and hasn't gotten back to those levels. Yeah. So um, Look at we that talked chart. about Howard Hughes, which is you know different. That the off this podcast we talked about that a lot. Um, we're not big DCF people, but you have to start thinking in terms of DCFs and stuff when you have something that will be developed over a long period of time and sold off. And so it's a question of how much it holds that value and how quickly you're going to get it. I always worry that people are um, overly optimistic about how quickly it's going to happen, right? Like the discount rate part of Mm -hmm. it, right? Because owning a lot of something that's going to, you're going to get in later years becomes worth a lot less when interest rates are higher or when returns in other stocks are higher. So, um, I don't know, but my experience with these sorts of things has been that maybe you can trade them as a value stock, you know, trade over a period of a few years, but any of the sorts of things we talk about uh, based on those asset values, even when we talk about something like Alico or whatever, um, but that owning some of those things for the longer term hasn't worked out as well 
as owning a, a business at 15 times or less P that's certain to have higher earnings and growing 7% a year. Like that tends to outpace it over time. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know the answer it's, but it obviously something that attracts value investors a lot and certainly attracts me to those kinds of businesses. And, um, sometimes they do well, but don't do as well as your other ideas. Why shouldn't I own beverages and defense stocks and call it a day? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on price, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> have you ever purchased a beverage stock? Uh, have I ever purchased a beverage stock? That's a very good question. I'm not remembering one right now. I mean, technically, I've owned a stock that did some things that are considered beverage as part of it. Yeah. You're talking J&J snack foods? Yeah. So I guess technically that's considered sort of a beverage that it was involved in. Yeah, but it's not like it's a, a semi-viscous fluid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's not even a real, uh, It's it does, uh, for those who don't know what it is, it's like icy, you know, it, it has like slushy things and stuff like that. Um, but we're not talking about a real beverage stock now. I mean, I've looked at some, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have sort of owned defense. I was going to say uh, yeah. Babcock, right? And Wilcox, BWXT. Yeah, BWXT technologies. Uh, that's basically, it does other things too, but it's heavily, heavily defense. Mm -hmm. Do you like defense stocks? Like generally? Uh, I think they're hard to um, figure out, like in terms of the um, the business for me to understand it, right? But I do think that if I was running some giant fund, like I could only invest in, you know, um, large cap stocks and stuff, I might own some ad agencies, some defense stocks at times, because there are times when uh, even though I can't understand the business all that well, most of it kind of averages out at the really big ones, the big defense contractors. Um, and uh, you can kind of figure out when they get too cheap and when they get, you know, people get a little too pessimistic on them or a little more positive. And so there are things you can own for three to five years or something and make money on. Um, but it's mostly because they kind of like average out a lot, the really big ones, the really smaller ones that are doing like one project that's going really well right now and stuff. And there's a few of those names that people talk to me about. It's just, I don't know the, you know, like it's entirely, I mean, BWX Technologies is interesting because it is not the primary contractor on that what's happening is it's something that's going into something so basically in that case you're you're doing reactors for um for carriers and also for subs you know both um and so normally that's a lot harder than say deciding if you own northrop grumman or um uh, general dynamics or huntington angles or whoever might be involved in those things um but that's a rare case where i don't mind owning something that's further down um in terms of further away from the the overall um, project there, and um, that is not so diversified. But that's a really, really rare example. So, somebody asked, has Jeff visited HBI, so it's Haynes Brand, yeah, since his write up in 2020? Price is still above his revisit price, but has the story changed in almost three years? Yeah, so I originally wrote up that company for a newsletter that I did. Um, and I mentioned in like a, you know, I was asked like for top stock ideas or whatever when it spun off. Um, so I actually did it when it was originally a spinoff. Um, this is Haynes Brands. I think that it has changed a lot over time 
from when I've talked about it before and when I talked about spinning it off. And um, I'm not sure I'm so happy with the ways in which it's changed over time. But I also think that it's kind of not that expensive compared to um, some things about the predictability of the business. Um, but this is heavily... Do you have the quick FS on it? Yeah, we could pull it up. So market cap is yeah. $2 billion and the EV is $5.4 billion. So ton of leverage involved here. Yeah, so it's about eight times EBITDA. Um, it acquired things and... I think there's some financial engineering and stuff over time. And I think they were somewhat more optimistic in their way. They talked to wall street and stuff than I would have liked. And they went through a period of several years of that. And yet the stock did well during that period. So there's a period where I think the stock was doing well. And I wasn't that happy with how the business I felt was doing under the hood, um, how well it was doing. So there's a disconnect. Um, Did you ever revisit this company? Just not out. Is it just outside of what you focus on No. It's outside of what we focus on, but yeah, it's not a bad thing for people to look at. Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we just talked about what six PE 30% return equity and stuff because it's being leveraged all the way up that way, which, you know, if you were going to leverage something up all the way, I'd rather that you leverage up, uh, an underwear company, right? Basic underwear company too. Um, then that you leveraged up something that's, um, that's not as, uh, predictable over time. Right. So, you know, we have EV to sales here, 0.8 free cash flow uh, percentage in the last 10 years was 8.5% as the median. So when you think about that, that's not bad, you know, um, but you're getting a leveraged, uh, return on that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, by the numbers, it looks like an interesting stock. Um, I'm not sure I like, like almost anything they've done since they spun off though, in terms of a lot of, in terms of the capital allocation, um, you know, but what are they not that it's they disastrous or anything? Yeah, we can look at the um amount of acquisitions. You can see that a huge amount of cash flow has gone to acquisitions. Yeah, 560 million, 360 million, 193 million. I mean, yeah, well over a billion and a half dollars since you know 2012. And really, in a short time frame from 2013 to 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but if you look at the predictability in terms of like cash flow from operations, they've been in the neighborhood of a, you know, let's say 400 to 700 million or whatever every year for the last 10 years at least. And you have an EV of 5.5 um, billion. So it's not crazy. I mean, that's not a crazy price or something, but um, they've tried to, you know, get some growth and stuff. I mean, look at this thing. It's, it's um, an underwear company mm -hmm. and it's grown revenue and assets at higher rates than when we talked about, you know, Omnicom or then we talk about any of those sorts of things, which has certainly grown as markets a bit faster than, than this. This is truly no growth. And yet it's been squeezing out ways to find some growth. Um, so I think it's not comfortable it, explaining itself to Wall Street as a totally no growth sort of business that's just going to buy back stock or whatever um, or do acquisitions completely outside of what it's in. You know, but be a good vehicle for someone who, you know, is an outsider type, a capital allocator or whatever, if they owned this and did stuff with it, you know, or wouldn't it be a bad thing for someone in um, private equity or whatever. But I don't, I haven't loved what it's done as a public company. What have they been acquiring? Is it stuff outside of just standard underwear? Yeah. So they have a big t-shirt business and, and stuff, um, but it's moved further and further away from basics um, things. And, you know, 
that's fine, but that's what a lot of their business is. Um, and as you can see, I mean, I don't love, I mean, look at this. I mean, that assets have managed to grow faster than, than revenue and all that, you know, why is, um, I mean, we can see, let's see, uh, what we have in terms of, uh, let's see, uh, what do you have for like 2012? What do we have for revenue, gross profit and operating profit in terms of, uh, total dollars? So revenue 2012 4.5 billion, gross profit 1.4 billion, operating profit 440 million. Okay, and then we have a lot more op operating profit in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, from 2018 on, it was 865 million, 851 million. 2020 was 43 million, uh, but then in 2021 it was back up to about 800 million. Mm hmm. And if we look, we can look at cash flow, um, the cash flow statement we can see. So, I mean, you can see a few things. So obviously like the cash flow from operations since COVID and everything has happened has been worse than it was 10 years ago when the company was a lot smaller. Now that could all be due to things being thrown off by um, COVID and, and all of that. Um, you can see that they what they had an increase of a billion dollars in working capital. Working capital is a huge item for them. Um, they're selling without contracts and stuff, so you generally have to have this. We can go to the balance sheet to show this point of mine that only companies like Fruit of the Loom, which is owned by Berkshire and um, Haynes Brands, can really supply the really big companies like the WalMarts and and um, Targets and all of those because they're carrying two billion dollars in inventory. And inventory, you know, it this these are this is stuff that turns, you know it's it's not like diamonds or something right it turns at a fairly decent rate so these are really high amounts of inventory when you think about it to have on hand just in terms of absolute units um and so other people can't get into the you know doing exactly that same thing um i i mean i i don't know i mean at times their stock wasn't that cheap so what were they going to do then um Maybe it would have been better branching out into other things, you know, um, than doing exactly what it's been doing. I'm not sure. Um, but when you currently look at it today, which is basically uh, close to, you know, a 10-year low, I would say, just from eyeballing it. I mean, would this be the time that you would just be interested in, in learning more about it? Or are you just completely unsatisfied with some uh, directions they've gone and just how they ran their business over the past, you know, five, 10 years. No, I'd seriously consider it. Okay. At this price. Yeah. What stock mm -hmm. do you have? I mean, what do you have that? No, it's not going to grow. So we know that. Right. Mm -hmm. But what do you have that is going to, you know, be what is at an EV to EBITDA of less than eight, let's say, for instance, or like we said, you're trading at in terms of price to free cash flow, EV to free cash flow, which is a really good measure. If we take like the long term average here, we're really at close to like it should be that you're getting about a 10% return on your purchase price. Mm -hmm. So, like a 10% free cash flow yield on something as basic as this. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's really, really interesting that way. It's not going to slow down because of some recession. That's not going to change things. Um, you would have to look at the debt and um, what rates are paid on it when it matures and all of those sorts of things. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I think it has some problems as being a public company, I guess. I'm not sure what they're all about, but the way that Wall Street has treated it, I think, has been weird. They got very excited about it for a while on the price, and it's been a constant downturn from then. It's uh, can you check like the turnover, for instance? Yeah, 
share turnover, <laughs> 733%. Yeah, and it's, there are times it's been shorted. It gets written up for short things sometimes. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure this should be a public company or it, or it should present itself a different way or something because I think the business performance and the stock performance are just... I've rarely seen a case where they're more different from each other. I mean, look at the 10-year numbers here, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, what's wrong with the 10-year numbers and how are they... At what point are they going up in a crazy way or coming down in a crazy way? Let's look at the stock chart. Well, they had a different CEO before. Um, it, if we look at the stock chart, maybe on OTC markets, we could see like what I'm talking about. So where did they peak? They peaked in 2015 at $33.30, around there. Right. And they'd gone up, what, 6X in price? In About, like, yeah. And how long? How long did that take to 6X? Well, this actually has uh, 2006. They're about uh, $5 a share. So, yeah. Um, and that was, yeah, 2006 to about 2015. So, nine-ish years. So, yeah, but I mean, it w what happened was it was flat for the t time of the spinoff on. And then in a period of, what, about two years or something? When is that that it's... Yeah, three years, two, three years, it goes up six or seven times in price. Yeah. And then it is in a constant downward trend for, you know, half a decade or something after that. So it it's goes parabolic for, you know, two years or whatever, and then it's down all the time for five years after that. I it is something that I don't understand why this is why the stock is volatile like this and stuff. I just don't know if I can like recommend it to people. Mm -hmm. Um it's got a bunch of debt. The stock price is incredibly volatile. It is also v very high turnover. Um, I just don't think people will understand what's going on and be able to stick with it. Yeah, so how about living through this? This was a $20 stock or something. Now it's $6. And you've just been losing more money in it than in anything else you could imagine. I mean, you could have been in tech things and stuff, and you're losing more money in this underwear company than that. Um and I don't know, because it's also just the stock portion of it. So it's not wildly changing the enterprise value of this thing. You know, um, it's changing it a bit, but it wasn't like it was, I mean, I, I think it was expensive then, but there are pretty expensive companies out there. This wasn't the most expensive of it. So I, it's a hedge fund stock. It's like they buy, they sell it, they short it. I don't know what goes on with it. I think the business performance is fine versus the price. Well, it's uh, at, you know, 0.8 EV to sales and a 8.5% free cash flow uh, margin. Yeah, and on a leverage basis, it's 0.3 price to sales and the free cash flow is 8.5%. And free cash flow is after all that stuff with the debt and stuff. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you even want to add on to it and say, okay, let me find if I can find leaps on this or something, make it even more volatile for me? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's the way to play. Yeah, I mean, I think the risk reward is is good going forward on it. Um, I, yeah, I mean, no, I, I don't look at this and say, oh, I'd much rather own the S&P than this right now at this price. Mm -hmm. I don't see that at all, no. Probably not a company for beginners, though, to invest in. I guess, you know, I don't know what people's personalities are, what they can handle. But I think some people would be like, why is this happening to this stuff, right? <laughs> why is it just this, a constant grind lower? Because, I mean, Peter Lynch loves the chart where you see the earnings per share and you see the stock and you chart them against each other. If we charted earnings per share at this company or like, you know, even something more stable like EBIT or something against market cap, it is all over. The I mean, we can see that with um, QuickFS can show us the ratios. 
Yeah. So let's go to key ratios. Yeah. For the last 10 years. Sure. So we'll pull up key ratios. Quick at first. Let's go down to some price ratio, uh, valuation metric, maybe like, um, what does it have? Uh, well, yeah. So let's see. Price to sales. Yeah. Let's take price to sales because it should be very stable as margins. So price to sales is sometimes, right? Two times sales, right? Yeah. It's gone from 0.78 uh, up to a high of two. Yeah, but we just said it's 0 0.3 now. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a value stock. Look, quantitatively, it's a value stock in every way. I think it's not a low volatility stock or anything like that. But if you want to know what like a large, I mean, this is not large cap exactly, but what a huge, I mean, any fund could have get as much of this stock as it needs to. I mean, we just said it. what turns over seven times and it's got a $2 billion market cap. So um, it's easy to trade. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So I did a call for stocks uh, that we could go over basically using the Buffett type screen that we talked about at the beginning of the show. So 15 times EPS next year, somebody feels 90% sure uh, do we have higher EPS in five years? And there's a 50-50 chance of compounding at 7% a year. So you had said that you were writing a blog post about this mm -hmm. idea of like confidence in investing. Right. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, like what that means to you as it relates to the investing uh, process. I mean, is that really, do you, do you gain that confidence kind of from the type of companies that you're investing in, how we look for more predictable, dominant businesses that may have some sort of local niche or maybe insulated from competition. Is that just sort of the nature of the investing you do where you could get to that level of confidence? So how do you typically think about things like that uh, and confidence uh, through the investing process? Well, so it's trickier for me than that because I think there's quality and then there's sort of confidence. So I don't doubt that Facebook has a large moat and that it could have a lot of upside, uh, meta. Um, but I wouldn't have 90% uh, confidence of higher EPS in five years. The confidence comes from some pretty simple things driving it that you don't think are going to change. Now, sometimes those can be human behavior. Um, those are the easiest, right? So anything that's a consumable, it's much easier to predict than something that isn't. Um, you know, someone was asking me about like... Um, a home builder, right? And comparing it a lot to car dealers and um, kind of wondering why I would have more confidence in a car dealership than in a home builder. But I do, and I have a lot more confidence. They're both very cyclical, both very affected by those things. But if you look at the history of earnings of both of those um, types of stocks, they're really different in terms of how volatile it is in one case and um, that it is in another. So when we talk about confidence, for instance, um, we just mean on a very statistical type basis. I mean, this is just, you know, predictions of these things. I think it helps to actually do this sometimes to ask people what their confidence level is in something and then to say, oh, well, that's insane, that <laughs> level of confidence, or that's reasonable, you know? Like you've um, been talking about that. Well, I mean, elections are one of the easiest things, right? So we've talked about that before. We don't talk about politics on this podcast, but um, often the numbers that you get from people in terms of confidence, unless it's like a site like 538 or something, which is doing uh, really working hard to get the confidence number to be um, based on a model that's trying to give you all the possible outcomes that seem reasonable. Um, people should not have such high confidence in most um, elections that you would have. 
as they do of who will win and who will lose. Right. And, um, because there's, it's fairly narrow. So there's not like a big margin of safety. So in any of the recent presidential elections we've had, for instance, the actual margin of safety in the polls, that is like the gap that you're seeing of one over another is really, uh, narrow. And so then when you put that through specific states, you would have a very hard time having high confidence in one uh, beating the other in terms of electoral votes or something like that. And that's uh, that's true for the last uh, three presidential elections, at least. So the last time you'd have really high confidence would be 2008. Um, 2012, 2016, 2020 are all pretty similar in terms of how um, risk that... <sighs> It was reasonably close enough in each case that you should have been pretty careful in terms of having very high confidence. Now, I think, for instance, I had too high confidence in the most recent one. I think I said to you that I'd have like 85% confidence that um, the Democrat would win in the most recent one. And that's too high confidence given the numbers that we saw after that. Um, but uh, the, the reason for that is based on just like looking at how much certain things can change in terms of how much certain um, vote levels can change and stuff, right? So for instance, um, there was just a runoff election in Georgia. You can have much higher confidence in elections based on polls in Georgia than in other states because Georgia has extremely, extremely like off the charts low um, uh, responsiveness to almost anything in terms of, so what I mean is the, the elasticity of anything that you can put in there is really low. So the, the the votes are voters are very set in their ways of voting one way or the other. It would never be possible to predict an election in uh, or a margin in New Hampshire the way you could in Georgia. Georgia would be much safer to predict that. And it's so you would need a wider um, polling. Uh, uh, so you need to lead by more in New Hampshire to be confident that you could call a race there as opposed to like Georgia, because people, you know, things change faster there in terms of there's just more people who are persuadable. There's not persuadable voters one way or the other much at all in in Georgia. So the same thing with companies, right? We apply those same sorts of ideas. Um, or another one is I always mention the website, the numbers, the numbers.com. That's T-H-E, then a dash, then numbers.com is uh, predicts these things for movies, right? And it predicts the what the run will be with a 95% confidence based on like opening um, weekend, stuff like that. So it is sometimes very wrong. So like I think um, uh, that uh, Top Gun Maverick may have like doubled or more the box office that was predicted as being the, 90, uh, the edge of the 95% confidence level in terms of high. So you should barely ever see movies outperform the edge of that 95% confidence level, just like you should barely ever see elections outside of that, but it might happen, but you'd think it would be small, but in that case it outperformed by like doubling it or more, but that actually happens a lot with the biggest movie of the year or something that happened with like an avatar or Titanic. So these things sometimes have an incredibly different pattern to how they perform. So it's really easy to predict the total um, amount that a movie will earn with confidence. Once you have uh, the drop numbers. So, Opening weekend is not sufficient to predict with high confidence what will happen to a movie and what its value will be over time. But once you have the second weekend number, it's a lot more because you now know how fast it decayed. And um, it just does not happen that movies drop by a large amount in their second weekend and then have a lot of legs that they perform really well. What you can't predict, though, is if a movie like, say, the Avatar sequel that came out 
if it has like almost no drop in the second weekend, then it could run for months and months longer, a year, whatever, compared to other movies. And it can just rack up an incredible number. But as long as you know it dropped 50 or 60% in the second weekend, you know how short its run will be. You can have a lot of confidence. So it's possible because of the different numbers that you need, the different things that interact with each other. And often the confidence levels that worry me um, that people talk about are it actually depends on a few things working together. And I think people don't realize how much that reduces the confidence level you should have that you need um, multiple things a, B, and C, all to happen. Even if you're fairly confident of each one, you end up with a very low confidence level that the entire series will happen if that's your only way to make money or something. And so having a lot of pathways to making money like you see from this um, screen, right? Where like you can fail in certain ways and it will still work out is one of those things. So using the election example, if you ha think that you have you're definitely going to win because these exact states are what you have, but you don't see many paths that you could win with other groups of states, which is actually what happened in, um, in 2016. Um, that it leads to a huge degree of overconfidence by people often because they don't realize that it's actually fairly narrow the ways in which this can work out for them. And if anything goes against them that way, it's not going to going to work out. It's much better if you have many different ways of, um, of being able to get to that outcome that you want. And I think that is one of the ways in which people may have too much confidence. So uh, a stock, for instance, having a few different ways of you making money off of it greatly increases the odds that you'll, um, that you'll, uh, that you can have confidence in it as a stock, right? So like, so, is Alico a great example of that last week? Like, do you have the land value and then you have also levers that they could pull to where investors can make money over time. Maybe give us an example of what that means. Correct. So Alico would be if it wasn't like a very risky um, EBITDA. So Alico's EBITDA is very, very risky because that doesn't mean, I, I should say like it has high variability. It's low confidence. Low confidence doesn't mean bad. It means it could have um, way outperform what you expect to. So the problem that it has is that the pricing of its product has very little, to, not nothing, but it has very little to do with the output that it can have because it has competition from places like Brazil, which are not affected by the same weather patterns as what it has. So you could have a great year for orange juice prices. Um, for, for oranges that's going to go into juice. But then that might coincide with a hurricane. It might co coincide with a bad freeze. Um, there are different things that could happen that could cause a lot of problems. Whereas if you are, um, you know, if it, you're a lime company, you know, limestone company or something, right? Or um, gravel or, 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 you know, those aggregate things where if we can predict what the level of um, construction will be in your area, we know you're going to get all that market share and we know that the the pricing is not going to move around a lot. So it's not a problem. The The problem for Alico is that it is unstable in terms of the price of the product and it's unstable in terms of the output. And this is where we talked about like um, Fermi numbers and stuff where what you're doing is you're basically taking a series and this is usually how you're doing calculations about businesses or whatever. You're saying, I'm going to take the, a series of different things and know that I'm not going to be right about any of them exactly, but some of them will average out all in the same direction and some so that it averages out the noise, you know, sort of the variations average out because it, it is just noise. It's, it's not um, something that we're going to see all an error in the same direction. 
whereas sometimes they're related to each other. So the good thing about the Alico thing is that for the most, for really for the whole part of it, because they can't change the levels of production each year, right? They made the decision to plant the trees, you know, at least four years ago, maybe eight years ago or whatever, to have this number of trees now, and so did their competitors. Um, the the price and the output are not really going to be related to each other, at least. So that's a good thing from that, right? The the problem is more when you have things where that. Uh, so so we could like we can miss big on thinking that output will be one level, and we could miss big on thinking that price will be some level, right? Um, the Alico thing would be better if they owned a lot more ranch land, right? Because then that's something that's unrelated to citrus as a business into those areas too, right? So that'd be even better, right? Because then you get more diversification from that fact. Um, that gives you even more confidence. So you could sort of think about what things would give you more confidence with something and what would give you less. Having more sites, right, around the country instead of depending on like one site gives you more confidence, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, but then what you want to be careful about, and, th and this is sort of the ones that... So I'll give you an example of one that I'd say is a potential good bet of which I, although other people feel differently, have low confidence. The risk reward may be good, but the confidence level to me is low, is Micron. Okay. So the reason for that is based on how other industries work. If you're getting down to a point now where there's very few players and they are rational in an oligopoly, you will have much better returns on capital in the future and um, it does seem that these companies communicate with each other basically through press releases and stuff in a way that's very um, that that the point of which is to share information with each other and their future plans with each other in a way to support rational pricing and stuff. So basically, it's to not violate different uh, anti-competitive rules and stuff like that, but to achieve much the same outcome, just like you saw like information sharing by the the chicken producers and stuff having going to trial all those times in the, in the US. They've had several trials for that um, because that's an, a business that if they could all coordinate on how to produce, um, how to run their plants, actually chicken processing would be a really good business. It, the, the economics of it are pretty good, but the problem is it's... Uh, that it is a business which will be doomed by permanent cyclicality um, because of the incentives to even to cheat, even if you had an agreement in place and stuff would be strong. So it's hard to build a chicken cartel. Mm -hmm. um, but it is something that, you know, you'd have good returns otherwise if it wasn't for that rivalry there. This is a similar one. This The problem here is rivalry in the history of the company, right? And so this company and other competitors that it has um, all show a similar pattern of really bad uh, returns on invested capital over a long t period of time in which for decades they've only earned good returns on capital in um, times when the supply was tight. So at one time's book at, you know, whatever the different ratios are now, that might be fine um, if you're investing in, say, like a normal sort of period. Actually, one time's book, to be honest, based on its past history is probably too expensive. Expensive, right? I, I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't actually think that any of these companies have generally earned their cost of capital in a way that would support um, one time's book, but there's definitely evidence, um, that it could be a better future for the company than it was in the past, that the industry could be better. Just as when we talked about airlines got to be a better business in the U S as it consolidated down and Buffett saw that after people like Bill Miller and stuff had already seen it and, uh, invested in that in a big way. Right. So these things do change. I just am not so sure about the confidence level because of things about how the industry works. And because of, I think the only ways under which it will earn very good returns. 
So you have to count on a few things happening, right? So one, you have to have like the oligopoly type situation that you've got. Okay. Mm. Two, so, you know, we say, all right, that's fine. Um, then two, you also have to have a certain level of behavior among the rivals because I don't know how big that number is, but maybe it's 10%, maybe it's whatever. Even if you have oligopolies that should support very strong um, prices for an industry and very good returns, there's sometimes, uh, there is the capacity to very badly harm your competitor in this industry. The best thing for um, confidence would be situations in which it's very hard to be harmed by a competitor. Buffett's big on that, and that is the number one thing. One thing about a moat or whatever, uh, you really want a situation in which a competitor has a hard time harming you, even if they pursue suicidal policies, right? It's actually very hard for Pepsi or Coke to take a lot of share from each other, even if they were willing to sell below their cost, and even if they were willing to spend radically on advertising and whatever. It's just, it's not going to do a lot. Um you know, that's ahead. like that's like the whole quote that Buffett talks about with Coca-Cola, right? If I gave you a hundred billion dollars, how could you hurt that person? And if you have a hard time or business, if you have a hard time coming up with something, um, you know, it's a very interesting sign. Right. Whereas in something like insurance for the new business, you know, of Geico and Progressive, they can be badly harmed um by competitors. So you're just not going to it's not gonna be possible to grow your policies enough at the combined ratio that you want. Um, you might be able to retain a fair amount of policies that are pretty old, but um, you're just not going to gain market share over time and stuff if they're willing to run at combined ratios well over 100. So in that case, you have to bet on the, the your confidence has to come from the idea that of regulation, of the way insurance companies are run, of things like that, that they won't be so crazy that they would, while having a relative cost disadvantage to you, price their policies below yours in such a way that they would be losing so much money that you could actually lose a little money because they can push you to that position. It, it is in their power of the other insurance companies to push both Geico and Progressive into a situation where they have no choice but to lose money, uh, have an underwriting loss. But to do that, they have to push themselves into such a large underwriting loss that it seems like they wouldn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. But there are industries where your competitors do that. They are willing, because, maybe because they don't understand what they're doing or what the reasons are, but they, they do it. And um, so you, you'd want to avoid that kind of thing, obviously, right? So um, a more insulated market position obviously gives you much higher confidence, usually. Um, extremely low volatility in, um, in like units demanded each year is really, really helpful. And the best way for that is obviously that you consume it immediately. So a habitually purchased product that's consumed immediately is the best one. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about Boston beer, you know, um, uh, Sam Adams and all that. Uh, a problem there is that there's inventory that goes through wholesalers and distributors and stuff and into retailers before it's sold. That business would be much more predictable if it directly was just selling beer from itself to it immediately goes to a consumer who drinks it. The problem is not that there'll ever be too much beer sitting in someone's refrigerator, but the problem is that you do see increased cyclicality there purely because um, there is a boom and bust cycle in terms of how much is getting um, stuffed in the channels where they're getting overstuffed. And that throws off um, the earnings sometimes and it, this has caused the stock to be more volatile than it should. If you look at like a three-year average like we did, you can see that those aren't there. And if you do estimates that the industry has of actual sell-through and the the believe consumption level, you know, so what people are actually buying to drink right now, uh, that's much more stable than what's being shipped. The shipments are a lot less stable. Um, 
So you could have more confidence. So that's like a thing to think about is when you think about the variables, right? I might have confidence in how much beer. I, I have to have more confidence just logically. You will have more confidence in how much of a brand of beer people will drink this year than you do of how, what orders will be for that beer. So retail orders are less reliable. You have less confidence in them than actual amount consumed. Amount consumed, the the you know the amount we assume to be consumed because we kind of can't directly track track that. But you know the apparent consumption um, has to be a more reliable number than the shipments than the orders. You know, so as you move further away, some of those things get less confident. Um, and then you know obviously. A product in which it's very difficult to sell more of um, because you cut the price is usually something that you can have a lot more confidence in. When you can stimulate demand by cutting the price, it's hard to have a lot of confidence in that industry. So, Why is that? Uh, because then people are incentivized to sometimes do that. Mm -hmm. So you're just right? competing on price. Yeah, well, um, they may be competing on things that are other than price, but they'll sometimes find them in, themselves in a position where they think that it's desirable to do that, right? It's an option. Whereas if there isn't much elasticity, um, a price elasticity, then that kind of option is off the table. And so it's easier to predict what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, using an, you know, what I mean about predicting these things is like, for instance, um, when I mentioned elections, predicting the outcome of the popular vote is higher confidence than predicting the outcome of the electoral college, even just the, in terms of, you know, who will have a higher or lower number in each one. Um, because you're having one thing that you might be able to predict with a great deal of confidence that will average out over a lot of different things. Whereas in other ones, it's really a series of different, uh, yes or no answers, true or false sort of things of, did they win this or did they lose this and by how much? And that all adds up. And sometimes it can all break one way or the other. And so I, sometimes when people have too much confidence, it's on like, you know, each of these things. So for instance, let's say you had a estimate that you say, um, and this is a, what people do a lot, a model that is based on price and units sold, right? It can be hard in a lot of industries to have much confidence in either of those. You could be wrong in both of them and wrong by a lot. And that will you know, push through to all the different things in your estimate in a way that will be pretty bad. Um, you also could compound errors if it's based on future years. And um, in some way, it's like a self-reinforcing sort of thing, right? So as it gets it's going viral, right? So as it spreads out, it becomes easier to spread to even more people, right? That's trickier because if you're wrong in year one, then you'll be off for year two, year three, because the base will be different in each case. Um, as opposed to things which work the opposite way and might average out more, you know, by that happening. So like there are certain things that you could probably a five year prediction is easier to make than um, predictions that are based on any one year. But in other things, it might be easier to predict next year than five years from now. Can you think of a time when you had a 90 percent confidence in something investing related and it was true? And probably more importantly, can you think of a time when you had a 90% confidence in something and that, you know, ended up not being true? Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, so, I mean, you can't be 90% sure about any stock in terms of actual price over five years or something. That's just not possible. 
uh, because th there's such a high degree of uncertainty about how the market will react. Um, so you'd, it'd have to be like I'm predicting higher EPS or something like that. Um, yeah, I'd say 90% sure to have higher EPS in five years. Um, there are some cases where that might have been the case, yeah. I mean, do you think like a perfect example is Buffett investing in Coca-Cola and how consumption at the time when he was investing in it was growing, it was going to continue to grow. It's that type of investment where you feel 90% confident that it will have higher EPS in five years. I mean, you also have to feel pretty good about the people running it so that they're going to control expenses or, you know, whatever uh, to fill that calculus. Yeah, I think I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. Yeah, but it depends on the business. So like, say, you know, Meta or something. It, I mean, some of those tech things, it doesn't matter how they control. I mean, they control expenses better than others did. But as long as you know it'll grow really fast, it'll be profitable, um, even if they do a terrible job controlling expenses. Um, it's just not It's not the kind of business that demands that. Um, for a retail thing, it would be harder. Um, you know, the one that would have passed both one and two, certainly, and three would have been a lot harder, is um, FICO. Fair Isaac. And so we could look at that one um, back in, let's say, 2010 or something like that. Uh, we have it. So pull up FICO. Yeah. Um, do I want to pull long-term financials? Yeah, you can do the, the the financials, yeah. Okay, so we're downloading financials. and You could do this if you sign up at quickfs.net. Tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. Okay, so here we go. We have financials all the way back to 2003, 20-year financial. Okay. So you were investing around 2010, correct? Yeah, let's look at 2010. So it's got a fiscal year there, so I don't know if it's 2010 or 2011, but that's where we can look. Um, yeah, so it probably be 20, the fiscal year ended 2011 is kind of the thing that you were expecting. So um, let's see, what was, uh, well, we can look at earnings per share, I guess, because that's what he's talking about there. So what was earnings per share in those years? A dollar seventy nine, And then uh, that was end of 2011. Then I'll just read onward. Right. Uh, $2.55, $2.48, $2.72, $2.65, $3.39. Yeah. So for the fiscal year ended t uh, 2010, uh, which is September 2010, um, that would be a bit that would be what a dollar for you said a dollar 42 or something like that yeah dollar forty-two. yeah yeah so that that would be the trailing number you'd be looking at we don't know if it'd be the 15 pe there you know because bob is talking about a forward number but if we we're investing in 2010 2011 that's the number we'd be looking at yeah i was 90 percent confident that the uh eps of fico would be uh higher in five years and what led you to that confidence just the business itself what they're doing nope uh, so it was a low point for, so it's based on transactions. Basically they, I mean, there's a few different things they make their money from, but what they really do is they get money based on the number of transactions using their score. Right. So it's a, you know, it's a per unit type basis. It's, it's a per unit usage type basis. Not like you get a subscription and you pay us $10 million every year. If you're some big company, instead, if you do it 10 million times, you pay a dollar, you know? So, um, the things that would be FICO scored were at some of their lowest back then. So credit was going to expand in the years ahead in terms of needs to use it. Um, and then based on that, uh, there's operating leverage because they have very, we can look at their expenses and stuff. But basically, if you'll see, you'll see that the, um, 
they don't vary their like SGNA and research and development stuff as much from year to year as their um, as you could have variation in like revenue. Um, so what you can see is we could look at ratios to see what I mean by that. So one thing that you can be confident in sometimes is if it's a particularly bad year for earnings, that's the easiest. Where at the bottom of a cycle, it's a bad year. They've earned a lot in previous years. I mean, you know, there's companies, I can be wrong about some of these, but like um, I invest, I, I like, like, let's look here. Um, we could see, uh, let's see. Um, how about we just look at like maybe operating margin? Yeah. So if you look operating margin, we'll use, we'll say I invest in 2010. We'll say I'm using 2010 numbers. Okay. Um, so if you look, operating margin was higher in most of the years before, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it was lower for a couple years in there, which are the worst years of the financial crisis, but every year before then they're better. Um, so you know that as, as sales go up, the operating margin is, I thought earnings would grow faster than sales, which they did. Um, the other factor though, that's really important in this is that they had huge amounts of free cash flow, And I believe that they were going to buy back stock as they said, they buy back stock, but regardless of whether they buy back stock or not having tremendously high amounts of free cash flow relative to your, the size of your business is really helpful in guaranteeing that your earnings per share will go up because you'll either buy back the stock, which they did, or you'll buy other stuff and the other stuff might not be good, but it'll come with earnings. So, I mean, the, one of the easiest way to know that something's going to grow in the future is just to have a huge amount of free cash flow relative to the size of the business. I think people don't realize that enough when I, when I talk to them that, okay, they'll be like, well, but how's the earnings going to grow? Well, if the stock's $30 a share and it's producing $7 a share in free cash flow in five years, you know, I don't think you're going to have a pile of $35 a share in cash and the same business. I think they'll buy stuff. And so... They might not, but they'll either buy back their stock or they'll buy stuff. So actually this thing that's a no growth thing will turn out to actually have growth, right? Um, whereas something that can't fund itself or something, you know, you have to worry about that because that's working against you. So like you have these hot stocks, you know, Carvana or whatever, right? We can predict the demand will be there, right? Um, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, there's a lot of businesses like that. Like we know that the demand is there and the demand might grow, but just knowing the demand will grow doesn't mean that, you know, the business will grow because if you're, you would need access to capital to grow. And at some point you won't have that, right? Like it's a lot easier to predict Tesla's growth once it's self-funding, I think, than in before it was. Right. I don't know that we'd have a lot of confidence in 2016 or whatever of how fast Tesla would grow because Tesla could have gotten in a situation where it simply would have had trouble financing its future growth. But once it started being, um, you know, cash flow positive in a big way and even like free cash flow and stuff, then it's a different story. Um, so, uh, and then of course, FICO is basically like a, you know, a monopoly and stuff. Mm hmm which helps with that. How do, um, how do you get to the this last bullet point, 50-50 chance of compounding at 7% a year? So actually, this is one where FICO disappointed me. Now, the stock did better than I expected, but uh, its growth was worse than I expected because the actual recovery in credit and the overall recovery in especially nominal GDP coming out of the financial crisis was much lower than I thought it would be. So this means on, an on a like nominal basis, everything I predict for growth for companies turned out to be weak 
a lot of that's not real. It's just that like inflation was barely anything. And, you know, so um, we saw that with COVID where suddenly, you know, ad agencies were growing 10% a year, but in those years before they were sometimes growing, you know, 0%. Um, it's hard to predict that, you know, over a short period of time. I think GDP is pretty hard to predict over a next five-year period or something. 15 years, you know, it might be easier. But even then, I think the nominal aspect of it is really, really hard to predict with any company. So, um, you know, in the 70s uh, or 80s, you know, Peter Lynch investing in the growth companies he's talking about, when he's saying they grow 15% a year, that's like a company growing like 7% a year, you know, in the 2010s. It's mostly inflation that he's talking about. So, yeah, a high inflation rate would have made that a lot easier. The really low inflation, low nominal GDP growth made it a lot harder. And so um, I thought they, my 50-50 comment level for FICO would for five years would have been higher. It would have been, yes, I think they'll grow more than 7% a year for those five years. Over like a 15-year period, my confidence level might have been closer to like 5%. Uh, that is a 50-50 that they'll grow at about 5% a year. But see, in the part of the cycle where you're coming back out of the bottom, yes, I would have expected them to grow 7% a year. I don't know what they did grow. They're, can you see what they grew their sales by? Yeah, we can go back yeah. to, let's see. I thought I had the... There we go. Okay, so uh, from you know circa 2010 area, 606 million to you know we're at 1.4 billion today. Um, yeah, well we know 10 years they they've grown at seven percent a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't know what the, if we can look at just the key ratios on that chart. Yeah, let's pull it up. We could see what I mean about. So if we look at the revenue growth rate, once it starts growing again, it didn't grow that strongly, right? Uh -huh. So it grew at 2%, 9%, 10%, 6%, 6%, 5%, 6%, um, 7%. It's grown stronger since then. But so that was weak. That was really weak. Um, now, like some of the other numbers did pretty well, mm -hmm. but I would not have expected it to come out that weak considering it had been, um, revenue had been declining for three or four years or whatever. So once it started growing, I would have been surprised that it was that weak coming off of it. Like that you only got 2%, 10%. It never really grew much more than 10% in that period. That's surprising when you're coming back cyclically from something. But obviously the earnings per share growth was a lot better. Mm -hmm. They bought back stock, earnings grew faster than, than sales grew and all that. So the EPS number is a lot higher. And how did you have confidence that they were going to continue to buy back stock? Was that just looking at what they've done in the past? I mean, even from 2003 no. to 2010, shares outstanding went from 77 million to about 45 million. So they already were kind of a cannibal at that point. Yes, but it was uh, stuff they were saying. Got it. So, so they had bought back some and usually it's very hard for me to ever be like, I know they're going to buy back starting now or something. But if you get a couple years of them buying back and they talk about it, um, I thought they were going to even up the buyback a lot more. Actually, that was the part I was most excited about. And actually, they did. Like, that had a big effect. If we look at 2009 um, as the date of, like, you know, um, from then on, they bought back, what, uh, 15, 13, 13 million shares in a couple years. Mm -hmm. They buy back more later and stuff, but that's actually a huge buyback. Um, they bought back like a quarter of the company or something in a matter of a few years. And what's exciting about that is they bought it back at really good prices. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one where the I do think the confidence level in like the stocks return can be upgraded a lot is buybacks. If you really are sure they're going to do them, because the advantage from that is um, this is where we're talking about like two things have to happen or something. This gives you more outs. Um, if the stock stays cheap, they'll buy back a lot of stock and it'll go up. 
if their buybacks aren't very effective, it's because the stock went up too much mm -hmm. and then you can sell. So like, will I get a 20% return in some stock like annualized or whatever? It's way better in a stock that is cheap and committed to like using all their money to buy back stock. And so at this time, this time in a little bit earlier, 2009, 10, 11, whatever, I was very excited about companies like FICO and IMS Health, which were free cash flow machines. But more importantly, I believed would just, they would just buy up all their shares if they stayed at 10 times earnings or whatever, you know, it, it might be. Um, that either they were going to go to a much higher multiple or they were just going to buy back an incredible amount of their stock because they didn't have other things to do. It was a big part of it. Um, you know, and this is what they wanted to do. And so that's kind of talking about how you said finding multiple ways to win in a stock, right? It's like business as usual, or they're just going to, if the stock price goes nowhere, you know, either cash will pile up, they'll do something with the cash or they'll just gobble up their own shares. Yes. And that's a big help that having a lot of free cash flow, mm -hmm. you know, is, is useful. I mean, one thing to always think about with free cash flow is the cumulative effect of it over the years that you own it. So let's say Buffett's looking at it for five years, he's going to own it. Let's, he may not be able to predict what it's going to be, but let's go to the cash flow statement to give you some idea of what FICO did produce in free cash flow over, um, let's take the years, let's say like 2011 on, I think it was 2010, but let's say 2011 on for the next five years. So we'll imagine we're buying in 2010. So you got 122 million, 104 million, 112 million, 162 million, 122 million, 188 million, and then just continues going up 206 million, 192 million, right. and then we're at 503 right. million. <laughs> so if you just highlight the years from 2011 to um, 2015, yep. what do you have there for, for the uh, sum? 623 um, million. Okay, 623 million. Let's look at what the market cap was in 2010. So we could go to key ratios. We could go to 2010. And this has the market cap around 983 million. And the next year would be down to 800 some. So if you get a company that's going to produce $600 million in cumulative free cash over the next five years, and it's selling for, let's say, 800 to a, a billion, 800 million to a billion, um, you know, the fact that you're going to produce more than 60% of the market cap of the company, let's say two thirds or whatever, in five years is what really makes uh, this like a high confidence type thing. So you talked about like oligopoly, getting comfortable with the behavior, with uh, competitors, uh, focusing on companies that have or uh, generate high free cash flow relative to mm -hmm. the company size. Is there anything else that you could think of? I'm just trying to always bring it back to sort of rules or a framework for everybody listening um, to really improve uh, people's confidence game as it relates to their investing. Yeah, um, I think, let's see, uh, the the biggest thing is like the not being able to be harmed by someone that way, right? So why was it that IMS Health and, and FICO are the two big ones? It's because they were producing a lot of free cash flow that basically came from the fact that they didn't have a lot of rivalry, a lot of competition that could hurt them. So that's the key thing there. And then it makes everything else easier to kind of imagine the recovery or something, right? The, the problem, if you don't have a good idea of like rivalry and all that is we don't know how much of the spoils they'll get. If you think about like a profit pool, right? How much will they get? In a monopoly type of situation, they'll get it. Even if there are other competitors, usually they barely get any profits. They might get some sales, but they don't get a lot of profits. It all goes to them. Um, in other industries, it might be much harder to know how much of it they'll get. And a lot of times you can predict 
that there'll be a big market, you know, total addressable market we talk about all the time, or it's in presentations all the time. The problem with total addressable market is uh, even if you had a lot of confidence in that, we don't know how much of that will be profit. And then we don't know how that will be carved up among the players. If you have a ton of confidence that it'll be a lot of profit for you and it'll be kept by you, then it's a great opportunity. Uh, and then we can have a lot of confidence in it. So, um, you know, the other ones like we talk about would be like, you know, I, and one that I got very wrong too, in terms of predictions, if you had asked me would be like frost, but frost is one where I had a high degree of confidence of higher earnings per share in five years. Um, in large part, because it was basically in the worst situation for its business model that it could be. So that's an easy, another easy way to look at it. Right. It, it would be hard to know if, if you're a spread business and it's a pretty good year for, uh, um, yields. Uh, it would be hard to know how much better it can get or worse or whatever, but there's a lower bound. And so the fact there was that a lower bound to the Fed funds rate was a big part of why uh, I talked about Frost. And of all the banks that I looked at, by far the one that was most interesting was Frost. Not because it was the cheapest or whatever, but it seemed the most uh, certain, having the highest confidence because of the simplicity of the business model in terms of where we were in the cycle and stuff. Um, that is... That's a huge confidence booster is to know where you are in the cycle for the business you're in. Mm -hmm. So if the business is totally predictable from year to year, that's great. Although it's usually priced into the stock, right? Everyone knows that like they'll sell almost the exact same amount of cigarettes next year as this year or whatever. Um, but for other things, it helps a lot if you know you're at the bad part. Um, so like uh, there's a company that, um, a UK company, called Greg's and it had the lowest it, it did like um you sort of think of it as like a mix between a subway um the sandwich company and um like Starbucks or something that's basically the best way to explain it to US investors but anyway um what was helpful there is it had the worst operating margins in margins in a lot of ways in like 25 years that's a big help now it could get worse but if you think that you know the reasons why it's the business is at that level that way and has those margins. It makes it a lot easier because you don't have to say like, here's going to be margin compression. If I think sales up, but margin down, it's really hard to have confidence in that. How much are sales going to be up? How much is the margin going to those things offset? You want a series of a bunch of different things that are all going in the right direction for you. It's much easier that way. And also you believe it's easier to know where you are in the cycle for, you know, uh, uh, let's say you're going to buy a stock just so you don't get it wrong, right? And think that it's going to continue on in the future. And in reality, it's like, actually, you were at like the top of the cycle. Would you say that's a new development for you to sort of be thinking about those things uh, as it relates no. to investing? No. No. What we don't talk about maybe enough or something is I'm very, very uh, concerned with buying into something that's in a particularly good situation right now. I don't want to buy something that's over-earning. I think that's the biggest thing for people to avoid. It doesn't really matter if I'm buying at the bottom of the cycle or something. That's great for people to trade things. But I want to really, really worry about the fact this could be the best year ever or something in it. And it's really hard to convince me to buy a stock where it's having like the best year ever, especially if it's a commodity thing or whatever. So, you know, lately a lot of people have talked to me about home builders or something. You know, the numbers that they're using are based off year, a year that was really, really good. We talked about car dealers. It would be a lot harder to bet on buying Virtu or whatever in a year that was the best year for car dealers in a long time than any year that was a very that you could tell was a lot like all the other recent years. Um, so that's the part that's really hard. 
Uh, it would be harder to buy OTC markets if it was in the middle of the meme thing and and um, it was starting to get see a lot more non-professional users and all of that because then you worry how much is from that, you know? Um, that's my, th when we talk about some of these like, um, you know, uh, different businesses, a lot of it is like how much of the profit might be coming from something that I don't uh, fully understand. Um, you know, like um, like Meta, right? The privacy thing. That's a big thing for confidence because I don't know how to address that in terms of how effective it is for advertising uh, effectiveness. Uh, it would be easier to predict like number of people active, you know, monthly active users or whatever than it is to predict like the effectiveness of the ads. And yet that's something you need to know to know like the profitability going forward, right? Um, so those are always harder when it's something like that. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you have ones where maybe... Um, I guess the other thing that I'm most worried about is um, being at an informational disadvantage, right? So sort of that the adverse selection type issue. Um, in other countries, I'm more careful about that because I think the people selling to me and stuff might know more than I do and might be reflecting the price in ways I don't appreciate. Um, in certain industries, I feel like they may be better at judging those things, right? So like um, for many decades, Intel performed really well and AMD did really badly. Um, but they're people who track the, the technologies they're coming out with their, what they're going to launch and, uh, what the performance looks like versus each other. Right. And if they think that they're going to have been at a disadvantage for a long time, and then soon they'll be at a big advantage, um, versus them, then they'll that that'll be a really big thing for them to consider. And it could be baked into the price and yet it's not in the financials at all. Um, so there's certain industries where I feel like that's the case. And then other ones where I feel like it's not the case. In the case of like Frost, I felt that the things that were probably being baked in there um, were not things in which anyone else would have a lot better information or something than I would. So things having to do with future interest rates and also the future direction of um, energy prices, I was not concerned that people were better at guessing those things than I was, right? Um, whereas if it was these loan losses are starting, these non-performing assets are starting to spike a lot, and they're not um, increasing reserves a lot or whatever, but some people are like, well, there could be some problems here. And, uh, you know, um, that would worry me more, especially if you're far away from it or something, right? So um, that's the kind of thing where they could have a lot more information, other people could, uh, than I would. But things like oil prices and interest rates, they're not going to be any better at guessing than I'm going to be. So, um, yeah, that's one example where people talk about, like, do you have to know why something's cheap? Um I don't know about that, but you have to, you don't have to, but I like to be cautious about things where I feel like I don't understand it as well as someone else might. Um, I also do worry about how I got the idea where I got it from. That makes me paranoid and stuff, but I don't like to have been getting it off of forums and things like that. I certainly feel much more comfortable that I've sourced the idea in the right way. I do take that very seriously. I think people may underestimate that and how bad individual investors' returns are. Because to me, and I think more than people realize, you're in the position of like an insurance company saying, here's our price, and then whoever wants it can come and take it, in which case you're going to get the worst pool of risks that way. And I think that the average individual investor may find they do worse than a lot of indexes and things because they don't realize it, but they're getting a stream of ideas that are fed to them from more promotional things, from whatever stuff. Um, you know, the average person heard a lot more about, you know, AMC than Cinemark or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Or Marcus. And 
Yeah, or Marcus. <laughs> yeah, which is an even better example yeah. that way, right? More. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, you know, and so that's something to worry about. And that, that like, where are those ideas coming from? And, and, um, if there's something about the quality of the information that you have, that's like a more complicated thing, but you have to worry about like with confidence, not just what your information is and whether it could be wrong, but also how the, the quality of the information in terms of the confidence level that you'd have, that that information is meaningful and measuring the right thing that is correctly measured, whatever you're looking at. And, um, also that the uh that there's not some sort of bias to what you're seeing and very often there is and what's being measured that way and so you have to be very careful about those sorts of things that's like we're talking about like the robustness of and stuff it just has to work you should you should always be able to substitute a number that's very similar to but not quite the same number and it should still work for your kind of idea your your theory of how this is going to work out Mm -hmm. and a lot of times i worry when someone brings me an idea or whatever and it's like you know, this looks kind of expensive on A, B, C, and D, but you're valuing it on measure E. And it does look really cheap on E, but it's better if it's historically cheap or cheap versus peers or whatever on a lot of different ways. So, you know, like um, banks or something, you wouldn't just want the PE to be low. You'd want like the price to their core deposits to be low. Like that would give you a lot more confidence. That's something that other banks might think about when buying each other. Uh, Price to tangible book for a car dealer um other things that and then if you had a bunch of them all triggering the same green sign that you know at the same time that this is a a historically low point or whatever that's always a positive too you don't want it to just be one measure that you have that you know it looks really good on like it looks cheap on one basis but not on any others we looked at haynes brands it doesn't look expensive on like enterprise value based things or on price based things you wouldn't want it to look good on just the leverage room. But so like, except for price to book on everything a value investor would look at, that stock would look cheap, mm-hmm. right? So that gives you more confidence when it looks cheap on all those different bases. It at least gives you confidence the price is low. It might not give you confidence about the future, about the business, about whatever, but at least it says you're not incorrectly thinking this is a value stock when it's not a value stock. Um, I've seen many times people say price to book and that this is cheap. And then you look at it and you go, actually on every other measure, it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. It's just of what book value is in this situation that price to book is cheap. It's actually not cheap on PE. It's not cheap on price to sales. It's not, it's just this one measure. And that might be a valid measure, but it, it's not, um, you have nowhere near as much confidence when you're just getting one signal instead of all these other ones. It would be like, you know, vital signs or whatever, like a series of all of them looking good it's a lot better than saying, I'm just going to measure one and go on that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So when can we expect this uh, post on confidence to be uploaded for free at Focus Compounding? I'm not sure because I'm going to redo some stuff with it with what we just had here. Okay. So I think what'll happen is it'll be a much shorter post than I intended. It'll be like 2000 words or something, but it was getting very long to a lot of people. (laughs) I'll end it there. It was going to be more comprehensive that way. But now I think with the the stuff about um, the Todd Combs thing, you know? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that that is out there and everything. People have seen it. And um, I think that's like more of a way of them thinking about how Buffett thinks about it. Because basically what I was saying is like confidence in terms of, is this a stock that Buffett would buy kind of confidence, Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of people talk about how they're Buffett-like investors and stuff, but they buy a lot of things he wouldn't buy. Yeah, sure. Which is interesting. Um, And, you know, that's just... And so what is the difference between a stock that Buffett would buy and uh, stocks that other people buy, um, you know, and why, and this really gets into that because it kind of gives you exactly this is why he would buy something like Apple, right? Mm-hmm. So are you going to, 
you update your framework, I guess, going forward and kind of use stuff like this or a framework like this? Because uh, the person had asked what's something that you would do different or change or whatever. Here's the thing, and I promise I'm not the person who did that blog. I'm not the I'm not the one who wrote this up or whatever. Um, that those three are almost exactly what I used for. Um, I mean, I would give them in slightly different ways. I would probably say about 13 times PE. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a number that I use a lot, just because it's convenient in terms of inverting and stuff. That you want about 12, 13. You want about an eight percent type return. That makes it easier. Um, I, instead of compounding at seven percent a year, I usually ask GDP. Mm -hmm. Right, that's often the one that I ask GDP or population. Um, so we got to raise our standards. Um, and then you know, ninety percent is a particular number. But are you really confident this is going yeah. to have higher EPS in five years? And not just that, but also very often, are you really confident this will have higher EPS almost every year? Mm -hmm. There may be some that it goes down, but that almost always the next year's EPS will be higher than this year's. Um, I mean, honestly, if you do that, stocks that have those attributes don't trade at such low prices. So that's how Buffett gets the multiple expansion. Like you could say he can't count on or something, but actually if you get something that has higher EPS all the time and grows at anything like GDP, people will pay up for that predictability, that um, that growth and everything over time so that they're going to pay much more like 30 when the market's at 15. Um, they're certainly going to pay more like 25 at least or something. It, they will pay a premium of 50% or something in terms of multiple. And, you know, it's not hard to see that. It's not like you couldn't have predicted that Coke would have expanded its... Um, it's multiple over time because those kinds of businesses just get valued that way. Mm -hmm. It's not as crazy when I mentioned FICO or when I mentioned um, JJ Snack Food, something like that. Now, something like Activision or something, it's hard to say because you you don't know about that. Um, but you do know what food companies and monopolies and different things and stuff do usually get valued at. So you can kind of see what the market tends to pay for that. For things that are, they might go hot and cold a lot more on something like video games, you could imagine. But um, some of the other ones you you can see that they are usually priced a lot higher in the market, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff Gannon and myself. We have one more show to wrap up the year. So we're going to finish strong uh, next week uh, to close out 2022. Uh, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. Wherever you are listening or watching, make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you want to get access to free content, go to focuscompounding.com. Uh, Jeff had said that he's going to upload a post so you could read that mm -hmm. for free at Focus Compounding. And of course, follow me on Twitter, which is the best place to get access to everything that we put on the investing world. I'll thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.